settled on Revelation 21. You know, when we break open our Bibles, normally they break open to the middle. You kind of think of it, that's the way the, such a thick book works. We, we might read in the Psalms or we, uh, we might turn three quarters of the way through to the Gospels and read the stories about Jesus. Or maybe even we, you know, begin at the very, very start in the book of Revelation. But rarely, like very rarely, do you open to the last pages of the book. I mean, Revelation 21 and 22 are probably given the least amount of attention by us as Christians just by virtue of kind of the way the book is arranged. And that's a shame because it would do us so, so much good if we would read of this picture of hope more often. Um, we are hope-based creatures as human beings. We hope that, I mean, we live with the hope that tomorrow will be better than today. And that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what you know, pushes us forward. We, we hope that uh, the light will outshine the darkness. And John, who's writing the, this, this book of Revelation, is him, himself in need of hope. The vision is given to him by an angel as he's languishing in exile in a prison colony on the island of Patmos, which was just basically a, a rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea, 35 miles southwest of Turkey. You can go and visit Patmos today. It's you know, utterly desolate. I mean, there's basically seagulls and rock there. It's where the Romans would send their political prisoners to work, to work them to death in the stone quarries on Patmos. As I read here, I want you to try and envision what's being described. It's not an easy picture to capture, but um, there are a lot of moving parts. Do your best to try and get in your mind's eye what it was right before you know, John's eyes. Verse 1, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and it shone, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, 
and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who walked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick, which is 250 feet. I'll tell you about the stadia in a minute. But the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure, as transparent, as glass. And then finally, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb is its lamp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> okay, the book of Revelation is what is called uh, apocalyptic literature. The problem with that word, at least that word today, is it, I mean, we use apocalyptic to kind of describe uh, post-nuclear war, dystopian universe with, you know, lots of doom and gloom and, and zombies. But uh, originally the word, it simply, it, it means simply to unveil, uh, to uncover the book's title is The Apocalypsis of John, and then somewhere in, you know, translating that Greek word into the Latin word, we get this word revelation. But Apocalypse of John simply means that an angel has drawn aside the veil and allowed us to see into a future, uh, a, 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 a trippy future, I mean, <laughs> you know, like an acid trippy almost future. It's not a simple sketch. Um, and it's almost like he's re reporting something like a dream, maybe. I mean, it's, a, it's a Salvador Dali rather than a Rembrandt. It's surrealist art as opposed to representational art. I mean, give you an example of it. We have the wedding day of the Lamb, and the, you can, if you can imagine, the heavenly organ starts to play the first few bars of Here Comes the Bride. All of creation stands... But instead of a bride walking down the aisle, we see a city that's descending from heaven, that, that's sparkling, like in, in some kind of sparkling dress. And what I want to talk to you about in, in the brief time we have here are three points. Number one, what is this future that is being um, held out and promised to us? Number two, what are the details of the city, at least some of them, and what do they mean for us? And then number three, what are uh, several things that are missing in this new heavens and the new earth, and what's the significance of that? So number one, uh, what God is preparing for us. Notice that John doesn't say, uh, Behold, I saw the holy suburb coming down out of heaven. <laughs> 
you know, where everybody has their own yard and, you know, white picket fence. Or, behold, I saw the holy national park coming down, you know, from heaven, you know, Jellystone or whatever, the, um, where the buffalo roam, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a city. Um, and it's depicted to us in the form of the city of Jerusalem. I think if you and I could go back in a time machine, what would stand out most to us about the city of Jerusalem was how compacted it was together. It was, um, you know, high-density high residential uh, uh, life. The roads of the city were rather narrow. Uh, all of the city, like if you're living in, in a room, your room, your house is attached to another room. I mean, it's apartment-style kind of living. Um, everybody who was packed into this place inside of the city wall, I mean, if somebody went bump next door, you heard it. Uh, um, everybody and everything was um, kind of like New York City, or I haven't been to New York, but that's what I envision it, just, you know, tightly packed in. Um, is that a good thing? Well, I mean, some people, they don't like cities. I, we were at a pastor's house up in Cave Creek on Friday night, and we were talking about, you know, this beautiful desert and all, and, but he said, yeah, I don't, I hardly even know my neighbors up here because we're all on like two acres, and the reason you move up here is so that you don't want to know your neighbors, you know, you want to, you want to escape. And that's how I think a lot of people think of cities, right? It's how overcrowded they are and how full of crime and vandalism and pollution. Uh, and Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the French existentialist philosopher, remember famously, he said, hell is other people. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of other people in, in a city. Heaven is other people too. Heaven is densely packed other people. How many of you, by, by curiosity, um, have ever been to New York City like, on a trip? Do we have, I mean, mo okay, wow, most of you. When you're walking along the streets of New York, do people smile at you as you pass them? <laughs> do they greet you um, on the streets? No, I, I think that there's, again, I'm just going by reputation, but there's this kind of, like, we're all packed in here together, and you never know what you're going to get in the next human being, and so... We're just kind of like focused on our, our task and there isn't, there, there isn't the sense of, um, oh, I'm happy to see, see everybody else. But what would it be like to live in this kind of city? A, city? a city like New York, but where everybody gets along. Um, what would it be like to live tightly compacted in a city where everyone were, were friends? Like when all the sinful barriers that separate us as human beings are removed, um, once every relationship turns out n not to be contention, but turns out to be infinite, perfect, deep love. Like once those conditions are met, that's, that's the kind of city that you want to live in. You don't want to live in the closest proximity with other people, you want to live with the greatest population density because the more dense the population, the more wonderful the love. That's the picture that's given to us here. So yes, this is an intrinsically social urban vision of the future, and that's a very good thing. That's number one. Second, let's look at some of the details of the city. If you have your Bibles, you may want to follow along. I'll begin in verse 11 where we read, uh, The city shone shimmering, shone like the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, 
like a jasper, clear as crystal. Yeah, you may have read through the book of Revelation before, and you may recall that the throne room of God is described, uh, it's comprised of jasper, which I didn't know this, but as I read more about it, is a white stone. The throne room is this, this brilliant white, like maybe like a deep opal. And in my translation, it says it's also clear as crystal. The only problem with that is in the ancient world, crystal wasn't clear. <laughs> they, they hadn't learned how to develop it that way so that it, it, you could look right through it. It wasn't clear, but, but it was sparkling. And I think that is the picture of the city itself. It, it's, the city is full of sparkling luminescence. If you've ever been standing uh, up in the mountains, uh, looking over a mountain lake, and the, the sunlight strikes the water just right, and, and you see it shimmering back uh, at you. Uh, I, we used to live in Boise, Idaho. We lived there for 20 years. It would snow, not as frequently as you'd imagine, but it would snow about 14 inches. And I, I love the days when it snowed and then the sun would come out. I mean, that's very Denver, Colorado-like, where you get this big snowstorm, then there's sun. I like to go running in the snow. And when the light strikes it in that perfect sort of way, the whole ground, it just looks like, you know, glittering, shimmering diamonds. It looks like you're running on diamonds. Um, it looks like the city looks like that. Um, like the shining wedding gown. Notice how he m meshes the, the imagery, you know, city to bride. Um, it, simply beautiful. Verse 12. It also had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the wall of the city had 12 foundations on which were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. You have these two representative groups of people being united together, the Old Covenant people and the New Covenant. They, they are all part of the city. And they live, it says, in a city where the gates, the gates of that city are open all the time. Like, that would be unheard of, again, in the ancient world. Like, your city, if you, if you lived in a city that had its gates open all the time, I mean, that city wouldn't last for very long. It would be ransacked almost Almost immediately, you know, modern equivalent, it would be like going on vacation and leaving your car keys in the car unlocked and then leaving the front door of your house wide open. You know, good luck with that. It's just, it's not going to work. Why do the gates of this city never close? Now, it's obvious. There's nothing to fear. You know, think of all the times in the Bible, the admonition to God's people is, do not fear do not be afraid. This is the, this is the city of do not fear. <laughs> like, there's nothing to be afraid of. Everything here is safe. I, I'd like you to step back for one second and just realize the power of that. I've grown up almost all my life in the suburbs. I've lived in, you know, some of the safest places in, in all of America. I mean, I grew up in suburbs of Mesa back in the 80s and 90s and then the suburbs of Boise, Idaho. But almost the whole rest of the world grows up in a place that isn't safe, where, we, I'm where you're just, 
you know, you're ransacked and you're looted and you're stolen from. And I've got a friend who is a pastor in downtown Chicago, like in the hood of Chicago. Their church has been robbed so many times. They've had to buy so many pieces of sound equipment. Uh, I mean, they've lost count. They, They had a space heater in the apartment above their church catch fire. The whole thing burned down. Um, that, is the, that is the universal, almost universal experience of humanity. Uh, imagine what it would sound like to somebody living in the Sudan to hear that there is a city that's waiting for you that is perfectly, perfectly safe. Verse 15 and through 17. These are strange dimensions of the city. I don't know if you caught it. It says the city is the same in length as it is width, as it is height. They said 12,000 stadia, which translates to 1,400 miles. So you get the picture 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400. What shape is that? When you've got same length, width, height, what is that? That's a cube. That is a cube. Um, But it's not just any old cube, right? It's a perfectly shining golden cube because it says that the city is is made of gold and you know there's only one other cube in the bible that's also a golden cube what in the what in the world might that be now if your answer to that question is the ark of the covenant um that's a good guess but you're wrong (laughs) because the ark of the covenant was a rectangle the only shining golden perfectly symmetrical cube in the bible those of you who are in the first service, you can't give away the answer. Whoa. Does anybody know what it is? It's a, it's a, it's a like stump the chump question. It's the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the, whole, the most holy place, as it is called. The dimensions of that little room that the high priest would go into once a year are the dimensions of a cube. But in Solomon's temple, you know, everything in the temple is overladen with gold. And so you would literally, the high priest would literally walk into a room that was shining like this, I, this shining golden cube. I mean, imagine what that would be like. I mean, I, not a rhetorical question. Imagine it for just a second. What it would be to be in a city that is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles that's pure gold. What, are they try, what is it trying to say to us? that the entire city is the most sacred, holy place. That not only the high priests would go there, but, but all of the people may go there. Um, you know, when a child writes a letter to Santa Claus and he puts it in the mailbox for the U.S. Postal Service, it gets delivered to the North Pole. Well, if a child in that day were to write a letter to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and he were to put it in the letter, it would arrive in the Holy of Holies, like somehow this God who created this vast universe who can't be contained in any of his creation, somehow he chose to localize his beauty, his presence, his goodness, his loving kindness, like you would walk into that room and you would literally feel the the hair on the back of your neck stand up because somehow or another God is here. And that's the entire city. (laughs) All right, verse 13, no, 18, 18 through uh, 21. There's additional um, building materials that are pretty spectacular that are used. We read that the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first was jasper, 
Then he goes, I'll just read it off real quick. Sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, uh, and amethyst. I have no idea like what the colors are of most of these jewels. I'm, I'm definitely not a, a jewel guy, I'm very proud to say. But I've been told that those colors closely correspond to the jewels that were in the high priest's breastplate, which was, you know, colorful. And so they might be saying that, you know, the city is a city of priests. I love this idea that the city is, it is truly colorful. Like, I would love for some um, Sunday school class with third graders to do a project like this. Read to them the description of the city, then hand them, you know, a thousand crayons and let them draw all of the colorfulness of the city on, on, you know, give them finger paint, give them crayons, give them markers. Let's see it through the eyes of a third grader, the, the, the resplendent, colorful beauty of the city. And then let's hold up that, those images and set them against, you know, the images that we're seeing from the Ukraine right now of bombed out cities, of destroyed cities, um, and contrast them. Because this is the city of man, and, and this is the city of God. And I think that if we were to do some kind of exercise like that, it would cause us to cry out and moan and lament and ask God. To, like, we would be begging heaven to bring, to bring that city soon. To bring it soon. Amen? Yeah, these descriptions that are given, uh, I can't follow all of them. I read it and my, my brain goes, you know. Uh, on one hand, the Bible is asking us to imagine heaven. The, the exact opposite of what Lennon wants, John Lennon wants us to do. Imagine there is no heaven. No, the Bible is saying, imagine, imagine this heaven. It's like this and then it's like that and then it's, it shifts into this. And, it, um, and then... Um, on the other hand, the picture is so fantastical, it's telling us you got to realize the real thing is beyond your imagination. It's infinitely beyond of what you've thought of. And so there's this, there's this tension of like imagine, imagine, and then imagine that your imagination is not even imagining enough. <laughs> that what is, waiting, what is waiting for us is so, like it's so sublime, so sublime. Finally, the four things, four things that are missing in the new heavens and the new earth. This is not a comprehensive list. These are just four that jump out to me. Number one, did you catch it? There is no ocean. There is no sea. Like, the first time I read that, I, I wanted to cry. <laughs> I mean, we don't, like, there is no, there is no Pacific coast. There's no Pacific Coast Highway, if you will, and that's horrible. I mean, those of us who've spent our summers you know, away from Arizona and in San Diego, uh, we, we love the ocean, we love the sea, but the reason that the sea is missing is because the Jews saw it very differently. For them, the sea and the ocean represented the forces of chaos, or if you're a really attentive reader of the Bible, you'll know that the, the sea oftentimes is a metaphor for the nations that are seeking, you know, to destroy God's people. 
Earlier in the book of Revelation, you'll notice that there's this demonic beast of tyranny that comes up. Where does it come up out of? It comes up out of the sea. There's this continual theme of the Bible of how the sea is ominous and malevolent. And, you know, the sea is where your, your, friends, uh, your husband, you know, sails off to and you never see him again. Um, but in the new creation, there is no sea, which means there are no more tyrants. There are no more Vladimir Putins. There's no more breaking, tidal waves breaking upon women and children and elderly. No more. Not in the world that God has uh, prepared for us. Number two, it says also that there's no longer a sun or a moon. And the first time I read that, I thought, um, why, Lord? Like, why did you nix astronomy? <laughs> I mean, I love the sun and moon. I'm, I'm a, kind of an amateur astronomer of, of a sort. I, love, I mean, he created such a vast universe, did he not? I mean, there's no reason he had to create it as big as he did with all of these, you know, supernovas and, you know, black holes and, you know, all of that. And yet he made it this large and grand. So why would there be no more sun and moon? And the answer that we think is the absence of sun and moon signals the end of the transitory nature of light. Light as we experience it on Earth has this on-again, off-again quality. You have day and then you have night, and day and night, and day and night, and, day, and we have seasons. You have you know, summer and winter, and summer and winter, and summer and winter, and on again, off again. But in heaven, the light is always on. The light is always on because the glory of God is always shining. You remember Moses, who there's that question, like, who can look upon the face of the Lord and live? Like, nobody. Nobody can look upon the, the glorious, gleaming face of God and live. But in this city, now everybody can stand in the unshielded radiance of the glory of God and not only live, but thrive. It's the city where the glory is always on, the light is always on. Number three, of course, there's no night, and metaphorically, you know, no night means no darkness. Um, no night means no evil. Every trace of evil will be erased. Um, you remember as a kid how frightened you were of the dark? I would lay in bed, I'd look up into the corners of my um, room, and you know, the, the light doesn't shine. Even when the lights are out, you can sort of, you know, see in your room. But you, the, the corners of your room are uniquely dark because there's, you know, very few light arrays bouncing around up there. And I'd, as a kid, I'd, if I watched a scary movie and then I looked up into those corners, I thought, like, there's a demon up there because you try it if you haven't. <laughs> it's uniquely freaky if you're, you know, age five. But there's no darkness because there's no evil. There's no laying in bed, afraid. You might even want to close your eyes as you listen to this. There will be no more curse, because there will be no more, and there will be no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more funerals, and no more rapes, no more robberies, or broken homes, or broken hearts, no more broken dreams, no more physical handicaps, or wheelchairs, or 
dementia or strokes, no more head injuries, no more canes, no more blindness, no more deafness, no more arthritis, no more diabetes, no more, no more missiles, no more bombs, no more terror, no more separation, no more goodbyes, no more bankruptcies, no more broken homes, because there will be no more darkness and no more curse. It says that he, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which suggests that we arrive with tears. Of course we arrive there with tears. Of, of course, you know, there's tears just like strewn all over our faces. But he will wipe every one of them away, every trace of them. They will be no more. It's the city of uh, do not be afraid and the city of no, no more darkness. And then finally, number four, this is kind of weird. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now you say, well, that doesn't seem that weird. But yeah, yeah, it actually does, if you think about it, that kind of the whole history of humanity is human beings build a temple so that the gods come and dwell in it. That's the whole idea. You know, we build this nice edifice, the gods come and meet us here. This, verse 22, inverts everything we've ever known about temples and gods. It says that there is no temple because he is the temple and we come to dwell in him. How can that be? The beginning of the Gospel of John has those wonderful words. The, The logos, the word, was made flesh. And one of the translations says, and he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his, his glory, the glory of the only begotten of Father. The Word tabernacled among us. Here, the last of John's writings at the end of Revelation, it says, We tabernacle among them. We dwell in them. We, we get to enter into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, what could that mean? <laughs> it, it's too, too wonderful for words. You know, I, I know when people talk about heaven, a lot of them talk about, like, the thing you're really looking forward to, the thing I, I am looking forward to seeing my mom again. Um, I am looking forward to seeing my grandparents again. I'm most looking forward to seeing Jesus for the first time. I think it will be full and complete ecstasy to see Jesus Christ face to face. But if it, friends, if it will be pure ecstasy to see the beatific vision, what will it be like to dwell in the Lord? You know, 99.9% of the blessings of the Christian life are therefore in that world to come. Um, I mean, this life is sad. Of course, it's so sad. It's tragic. There's terrible pain. But you realize the worst of it is what, 70 years of pain or 80 years of pain or 90 years of pain. But there we will dwell in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. Finally, in conclusion, I I just wanted to show you this last picture. I didn't read it originally, but it's from Revelation chapter 22, the very next chapter, verse 1. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's taken us back to Genesis. In the middle of the garden is this tree of life, and from the garden flows a, a river that then branches out into four different rivers. But here we have a river that's lined with the tree of life. And this tree is always producing fruit all of the time, all year round. Uh, there's never any possibility of death. And imagine this, imagine this, to walk up to one of these trees and to pluck a leaf off this tree. And somehow the, the medicinal properties of that leaf are like a balm, it says, for the healing of the nations. And there's a lot to be healed. For the healing of World War I, for the healing of World War II, for the eventual healing of World War III, or even World War IV. The story ends with the nations, all the nations of the earth, being healed and living happily ever after. And that is good news. <laughs> Is it not? Um, the Bible teaches us that, you know, our future is this future city, that we weren't built for everlasting decay, but for everlasting life in this great communal urban um, city. And the best of it is that the Lamb is the one who will be there. How do we know? I know you could be here this morning, and you might not even be a Christian. You're like, well, how in the world is this? How do I know this isn't you know, pie in the sky, by and by, wish fulfillment, religion, the opiate of the masses. How do I know that this vision is really going to come to pass? How do you know? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the, the new creation comes, it's already come. And because that's true, every word that I just spoke to you, um, you can be rest assured it's true as well. Amen. Let's pray.